So this evening we will be looking at the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel according to Mark, and what I've subtitled this Gospel as the Gospel according to a young scaredy cat. And hopefully as we, as we go through Mark's life, we'll see why I entitled that and what it means for us. But um, just as to review very quickly, last week we talked about the Gospel of Matthew. And I didn't do this last week, but I meant to. Do you realize that Matthew is 28 chapters? So that means if you read four chapters every day, which is very doable, probably take you about 20 minutes, four chapters a day, you will get the book done in a week, right? And then the book of Mark is only 16 chapters. And so if you read two and a half chapters per week, you will get the book done. And as we go through, I think it would be a wonderful idea, and I, I'm doing this myself. Uh, part of it's for me, it's study, but I think it's a great thing that if we can get into the books, get the introduction, understand kind of what the book is about, and then actually go through it and see those things in the book. I think that'll help you really get the stuff, you know, get it into you and remember it. And I know even, even lessons that I've gone through before that I've even taught, I forget so much of it. And so I know, I've, I've heard thousands of messages from pastors before, and if I could remember just half of what I've heard, I would know so much more than I do. And so one of the things that we ought to do as believers is when we learn things about Christ, when we learn things about the Word, find ways to get it into us and to remember it and to retain it. And so one of the ways that, that this might be helpful is if you take the time to read the book and really, really try and... You know, hey, the teacher might not be that good, but the Bible's good. <laughs> and so let's get as much from it as we can, okay? So I'd recommend doing that. We saw the Gospel according to Matthew is Levi. He was a tax collector last week. And we saw that he wrote to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah and King. He was proving that to the Jews. The lessons we learned last week is that the Bible is one story. We saw how Matthew brought the whole Old Testament to light in what he wrote about Jesus in the New Testament. He showed very clearly that Jesus was the Messiah that was prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament, that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies, the law, the Psalms, that they're all fulfilled in him. And so we saw the Bible as one story. We saw Jesus is the king. He is not just a friend. He is a friend, certainly, that's true. God is not just our father. We are not just his child. We are also a servant to the almighty, all-powerful king of the universe. And so Jesus, yes, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, but he is the King, and we see that clearly in Matthew, that he ought to be worshipped. And finally, we saw that Jesus can save anyone. That included Matthew, this self-righteous, proud tax collector who is ripping off his own people, and it includes people like you and me. It includes people like our neighbors and our friends and our relatives and, and people that we love and people that maybe we don't even like. Jesus can save them. He can save anyone. And this week, we will get into the shortest gospel, the gospel of Mark. I hope that we can learn about discipleship and suffering. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you that we can open up your word and, and just be confident that you have given us everything that we need for this life. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would see your, uh, what's written here, not only in Mark's gospel, but in the whole Bible, uh, for the treasure that it is. Lord, that you've... Because you love us so much, you have written down for us what we need to know. And Lord, I pray that we would take heed to it, that we'd pay attention, that we would um, strive to learn what you've written and to apply it to our lives and to um, 
just place your word as the ultimate authority in everything that we do. And Lord, I pray that this evening you'd, you'd give me the words to say, Lord, that our study would be fruitful, that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and lives. Um, we love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of Mark's Gospel, can anybody guess? Is Mark. Absolutely. Now, there's no internal evidence of this, and there isn't for any of the Gospels. That's not unique. Um, but we do know that from very early in the church, the early church fathers all recognized Markan authorship of the book. Uh, the earliest that we have is a man named Papias. And Papias wrote in 140 AD, but he was actually for a while a contemporary of the Apostle John. And so he, the, the story goes that he learned from John himself who wrote all these things. And that's John the Apostle, not John Mark. And so this is what Papias wrote. He said, Mark was a close associate of Peter from whom he received the tradition of the things said and done by the Lord. This tradition did not come to Mark as a finished sequential account of the life of our Lord, but as the preaching of Peter preached directly to the needs of the early Christian communities, Mark accurately preserves this material. And so what he's saying there is that, yes, Mark was the author, but not only was Mark the author, but a lot of Mark's material came from Peter, the Apostle Peter. And that is a tradition that all of the early church fathers held. And that, that's something that we can't just absolutely prove, but as we look at the book of Mark, and from what we know from the early church, we understand that not only are we reading what Mark wrote and what Mark knew, but we're getting a little bit of Peter's perspective. Because Mark spent so much time with Peter, and he heard Peter preach often, and he was with him so often, that all of what Peter understood about the gospel was relayed to Mark. And then Mark was the one that just wrote it down. I want to look quickly at a, at a biography of this man named Mark. Before we get into the contents of the book, I always find it very helpful just to know who wrote it, what this guy was like. And so as we look at Mark, the first time that he appears at least possibly appears, is at the very end of his own gospel. The scene is that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has just prayed and wept and asked for the cup to pass. And he's got up and Judas has just come and betrayed him with a kiss. And as the soldiers go to take Jesus, there's also commotion among the disciples. Remember Peter cuts off the soldier's ear and, and all that happens? Well, this is what Mark writes. As all this is happening, it says, Mark chapter 14, verse 51, And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young men laid hold on him. So the scene is that there's a young boy here, a young man. We don't know what his name is, but Mark is the only person that records this account, and people think that maybe this is Mark's little bit of autobiography in his gospel. There's a young man, they, they grab onto his clothing, to, to arrest him as well. And it says, verse 52, and he left his linen cloth and fled from them naked. And so the first picture of possibly the man that is Mark that we see here is a man who, as Jesus is being captured and being taken, he is fleeing the scene terrified and naked. The, the second time we see Mark come up for sure is in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. It says, and when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. That's why we have John Mark. 
where many were gathered together praying. And so, so what we learn here is that as Peter is being released from prison, he comes, and, and remember the whole story of how, what's the girl's name? Rhoda, yes. Uh, D was coming to my, yes. The story where Rhoda comes and she answers the, she answers the door, and, and then she runs in and she says, look, Peter's alive. And then she gets this argument with all the people that are there, the disciples there that are praying that Peter would be freed. That's what they're praying about. And they say, no, Rhoda, it can't be Peter because Peter's locked up. And she's having this argument with him. And eventually, finally, she says, look it, just come down here and see. And it says Peter is still down there knocking. She doesn't bother to let him in. She's just arguing with the people to say that he's there. It's a really funny story. But as she finally lets them in, we find out that the house that they're at is John Mark's mother's house. And the most likely thing is that this house was, was the house where they met in the upper room. And so it's, it's a, like from the very start, Mark would have been very attached to the disciples. He's probably a generation younger than them. But he's there, and, and, and things are happening in his mother's house, and he's watching them pray, and he's seeing the example of the disciples from the very beginning. He's getting to spend time with them, and he's getting to hear their stories about what Jesus did and who he healed and how all this happened. And so if we want to know where his source material came from, I think he just grew up surrounded by the disciples. And he might not have been an eyewitness to the events themselves, or at least most of the events themselves, but he was constantly surrounded with people that were eyewitnesses, that could give him very good details about what happened. We find then in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, that he is given his first task, or at least he has his first opportunity. That is to help the church in Antioch. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And so here, Paul and Barnabas are about to head back to Antioch because there's this brand new church here, the first Gentile church, and they need a lot of help doctrinally. They need a lot of help determining how to set up the church. They have zeal, and they're so excited that Christ has saved them, but they don't know the Old Testament like the church in Jerusalem, they don't have that foundation. And so they ask for help, and the people that go are Barnabas and Saul, or Paul. And at that time, Mark tags along with them. Okay? He's going to go and learn and try and help where he can. Soon, Paul and Uncle Barnabas, Barnabas was his uncle, are called to be missionaries. So they're in this church, they serve for a while, they have the church founded, they, they lay a good foundation, and then they're about to head out on their first missionary journey. And we find out in Acts 13.13 13, that Mark actually went with them. So as they left, he said, hey guys, can I go too? And so they have this small little company, the three of them, that head out on the first missionary journey. But in Acts 13.13, 13, we find out that John, John Mark, departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. And so this guy, who was all excited to go with them to Antioch, and then he was excited to be serving there in the church and being one of the leaders there, when he's finally put on this mission field, and he goes out to serve with them, encounters a little bit of hostility toward the gospel, the next thing he does is tuck tail and run to Jerusalem. And so that's, that's John Mark. This is who we're dealing with. We're dealing with, first of all, a guy who, if it was him at the end of his gospel, the young man... Jesus is arrested and he just tucks tail and runs. And the next thing that happens is, you know, he goes to Jerusalem, he, or he goes to Antioch, he's helping out there, he goes on a missionary journey. Again, he's leaving because he's scared. He, he can't face it. 
This is who we're dealing with. And you know what? We don't hear anything else about John Mark for about 15 years. 15 years, silence. No, I'm sorry, that's not true. There is one more thing that happens. So Paul and Barnabas complete their trip. And then in Acts chapter 15, they decide they're going to go on another trip. So on the second missionary journey they head out to, Acts 15, 36 to 39, we read this. Some days after Paul said to Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them in Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And so that is the, that is the next time we see Mark. Here he's given by his uncle this second chance. Paul, I mean the godliest person, a human being next to Christ that we can imagine, says Mark is no good. I will not bring him. And Barnabas says, I'm going to give him one more chance. And the first thing they do is, is they set sail back to Cyprus. And Cyprus is the island where Mark quit at. And so Barnabas says, I'm going, I'm going to take you, but we're going right back to where you quit because that's what the ministry looks like. And at that point, we don't hear anything about Mark for about 15 years. Okay, so, so as far as we know, Mark quit again. I mean, we don't know what happened with Mark. We don't know how he's changed. All we know of this guy so far is that he gets opportunities and he blows it. He, he's presented with some danger and he just runs. This is who Mark seems to be to us. But there is good news. We find out in, Mark's, in Paul's writings, Paul, the one who wouldn't take him on the second trip, that Mark is now profitable for the ministry. In, Philipp, in Philemon chapter 1, verse 24, he's just listing people to Philemon at the end of his letter, and he writes, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, which is Luke, are my fellow laborers. And so Mark and Luke, he's referring to two guys we know very well. They're his fellow laborers. Now he's writing Philemon from a Roman prison 15 years later. And now he's in this Roman prison and he can say, Mark is a fellow laborer of mine. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye have received commandments, if he come to you, receive him. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. And so he lists a couple guys, and in those couple guys, he said there's Marcus. And just so you know, Marcus is going to come, and he's had commandments. You need to receive him and do what he says, because these commandments are legitimate. And then he says at the end of that, that they're my fellow workers under the kingdom of God. And so Mark, Mark has gone from being an unprofitable, I won't even take him onto a trip, to, hey, I'm going to send him with some commandments, so you need to listen to what he says. He is my fellow worker. He's profitable to me. But even greater than that, look what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He says, only Luke is with me. So this is Paul writing from a Roman prison to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And he's writing at the very end of his life. This is the last letter that he writes. And this is almost one of the last sentences that Paul writes. And he says, Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Listen, Timothy, I'm just about to die. 
I need you to come to me. I, I need you to bring some people. I need you to bring some of my books. And you've got to bring Mark because he's profitable. And so Timothy brings Mark all the way to Rome. And we don't, we don't know how the, all the rest of the events play themselves out. But the assumption is, after Timothy brought Mark to Rome, he labored there with Paul for a while. Paul eventually was killed. Peter was killed in Rome by Nero. And in the midst of all this persecution that's happening in the church of Rome, Mark writes this wonderful gospel to encourage them. What a great story about how God took this life of a failure. A guy who failed over and over again. I mean... And then he made him this guy who encouraged the Church of Rome, who wrote this wonderful gospel. It's a great story. And so I hope we can learn some things from it tonight. The date and the place. Uh, As best we can tell, it was written between AD 60 to 68. If I was forced to nail down a date, I would probably say 63 or 64, most likely time that he wrote, but somewhere between that time from, from Rome. The purpose of his letter is to present the power and mission of Jesus, suffering servant and divine savior. So he's writing to show the power of Jesus. And and as we look at the book of Mark, if you've ever seen, you know, a breakdown of the Gospels, a lot of authors seem to be very, very sure about exactly why they wrote. This was their one single purpose. But the truth is, the gospel writers, they wrote for multiple reasons. They mo- wrote for multiple purposes. So it's, it's almost impossible to just say, you know, this is the one reason they wrote. They were, I mean, with Matthew, it's probably the most clear. He wrote to the Jews to show that he was the Messiah. Most clear there. But with the other three gospel writers, very clearly, if you read his writings, you can make a case for the, that Mark wrote to show that Jesus was powerful. You can make a strong case for that. You could also make a case to show that Mark wrote, to show that Jesus was a suffering servant. And those two things seem to conflict. He's powerful, he's God, he's almighty, he's deity. Wait, he's a suffering servant? He's lowly, he's humble? It it seems to conflict. The truth is, Mark wrote for both of those reasons. So he wrote to show the power and the mission of Jesus, but he also wrote to show that he was the suffering servant and the Savior. First. Also Mark, I think, because he wrote in Rome, it was to me, it was to the Gentiles. I'm not interested in the genealogies. I'm not interested. So you've got yep. power and then his purpose. Yes. You're getting way ahead of me, but you're absolutely right. Following it where it is going to go. So, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, remember we t- we, I gave the analogy a while ago about you had four different people watching a hockey game and you had this, this goal scored and, and there was four people giving their view of what happened. Well, that's kind of what we like, what we have with the four Gospels. As I gave the analogy, I said that, you know, John was probably the guy that was on the ice with him, the best friend of the guy that scored. I think Sidney Crosby was their goal scorer. So his best friend. There's John. And then you have the backup goalie in the bench, and this is Matthew. He's, he's there, he's on the team, he's involved, but he's not quite as involved as the best friend and the guy that's on the ice with him. And then you have Mark, who is far off in the bleachers. He can barely see what's going on and probably can't really tell what's going on, but... The good news is he is a backstage pass to the dressing room after the game. And he gets to get in the dressing room and hear the story from all points of view of all the disciples. And so what does Mark bring to the table? Well, when we look at what what he brings to the table, I think what we really see is what he emphasizes. 
Okay? All the gospel writers wrote about Jesus' life. They, they include some of his teachings. They include some of his miracles. And so you could, you could say, well, they all wrote the same thing. But we understand that some writers emphasize one thing or an, over another. And so what Mark emphasizes is really interesting. In his gospel, there is very little teaching. He tells about four parables. That's it. That's very few compared to what Matthew told. But in his gospel, he records 18 miracles, more than any other gospel writer. If we re- when we read his gospel, we see the word immediately or straightway appear 40 times. And it, it is only occurs 52 times in the New Testament, 40 of them in Mark. And so this is how Mark works when he writes his gospel. He works, Jesus did this, and then right away he did this, and then straightway he did this, and immediately after that this happened, and, and he did this, and Jesus did this, and then he said a couple things, but then he did this, and he performed this miracle. He healed this person. And for, if you read the Gospel of Mark, you have this really condensed version of so many things that Jesus did. He's focusing on the actions of Jesus. And so his purpose is to present the power and the mission of Jesus. How does this go toward that? Well, he wrote to present the power of Jesus. And we see the power of Jesus displayed in the miracles. He showed power over nature. And I think I've recorded these verses, so we're not going to go over them all with you. But in his miracles, we see power over nature uh, multiple times. Power over demons multiple times. Power over diseases many times. We see power over death as he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. We see power that was recognized by all. If you look at Mark chapter 6, verse 14 to 29, we see that everybody around him just could tell that there was this incredible power. Now, why is this important? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but if he's writing to a Roman mind, and we're going to talk about that in a second, he's writing to a Roman mind, and what they're concerned with is what you do. They're not like Greeks that are so, you know, well, what does he think? And what did he teach? And what was his philosophy? And, and, you know, what am I going to gain from this? How, can I, how will it change my mind? He wasn't like the Greeks. Okay? The Romans were different. And they weren't like the Jews where they, where they needed proof to say, okay, well, how is this historically relevant, what he did? You don't need to continually go back to the Old Testament and show prophecies fulfilled. But for a Roman mind, they want to know what you did. What's his action? Prove it to me. Okay? And actions speak louder than words. They got that. This is how the Romans lived. And so for the Romans... He showed miracles. He showed that he had power over all these things. He was presenting Christ as this powerful God on one hand. In fact, the book begins with Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm going to begin the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, and he is the Son of God. Mark does not use that title, Son of God, very often, but when he uses it, it is very important. The second time he uses it, it's, it's spoken by a demon. And the demon in Mark chapter 3.11 says, Unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, Thou art the Son of God. You see what he's doing again there? He's showing the power over demons. Thou art the Son of God. And so that's an, an incredible testimony when you have even demons calling him the Son of God. But the very climax of Mark's gospel is in Mark chapter 15 verse 39. Now, all the Gospels certainly climax with the cross and the resurrection. I mean, those are the, the primary events. But if, there was a, if we're going to pick out a verse to say, this is what Mark was building to, we would probably pick this verse. 
Mark chapter 15, verse 39 says, And when the centurion... Who is the centurion? Roman soldier that was in charge of 100. Okay, 100 other soldiers. So he is probably the guy that's in charge of the crucifixion. And he is the one carrying out, his soldiers under him are the ones carrying out, you know, driving the nails in his hands and, and putting him up on the cross and whipping him and all those things. They, it was his, under his command that that happened. And the centurion says, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. What a powerful testimony. He's speaking to a Roman crowd, a Roman mind. And he says, listen, at the end of, of seeing what happened to Jesus, the centurion, the Roman soldier in charge, could, I mean, if anybody had a reason to deny Jesus as being the Son of God, it would have to be the guy that just put him to death, right? And that man says he was the Son of God, and I just killed him. What a powerful testimony. And so he wrote to show the power of Jesus, but he also wrote to show that Jesus was a suffering servant. Yes, he was powerful. Yes, he did miracles. Yes, he was the son of God. Th those things are absolutely true. But this is, this is the way God came. He came as a suffering servant. And I think what Mark is doing here is he's trying to, to contrast the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, with all of the gods that the Romans would have understood. Because every god that the Romans understood, they would all attribute power to them. Okay, they were all powerful gods. But they were also antagonistic toward their creatures. Okay, they, they, they made deals with them. You worship me. You slaughter these people for me. You, you know, give me certain things. And as long as you do these things, and I have this kind of bargaining agreement with you, that I will take care of you then. But I mean, you need to... And it's almost... This, this, the idea of the Roman gods were very proud gods. They were just proud of themselves. And, and, and he's saying that, hey, listen... This God, he was powerful, absolutely. He, he had power over all the things, uh, all the gods that you supposedly worshipped. He showed power over those things, over nature, over demons, over all those things. But he came as a suffering servant. I heard a story just recently, and it was about uh, a group of people that worshipped many gods, and they were trying to explain to this Christian missionary how they saw people getting to God. So how it was that, that they would get to God as well as this missionary would also get to God. And so the missionary said, okay, well, this is, this is the way I understand it. He said, what you're trying to tell me is that we're all at the bottom of a mountain. And at the bottom of this mountain, you're climbing up one side and I'm climbing up another side and we're all encountering different things and finding a different path. But ultimately, we're all climbing to the top of the mountain and we're all going to reach God. And the, the missionary, these pagans said, yes, you finally get it. You finally understand how it works. And the missionary said, what if I told you that God came down to get you? That's a different story. This God that Mark is presenting, he's different than the Romans gods because he is not just powerful. And he is. But he's also a suffering servant. He came down to get them. And Mark shows that clearly. Jesus spent his entire ministry serving helping and healing others. The, the power that he demonstrated was not power to demonstrate, to bring honor and glory to himself and just to show that he was wonderful for no reason. He was healing people because he had compassion on them. He loved them. Mark is careful to point out Jesus' emotions as he heals people. 
Mark chapter 1 verse 41 says Jesus was moved with compassion and so he healed the leper. And the leper is the outcast of society. He loved the leper. He was moved with compassion and so he healed him. Mark chapter 6:34 says and Jesus when he came out saw much people and he was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. And so why did Jesus heal? Because he loved people. Why did he teach? Because he saw that they had no shepherd, that they had no guide, they had no way. And so he taught them. Mark chapter 8, 2 says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Why did Jesus heal the 4,000? Because he had compassion on them. And so he fed them. He demonstrated his power, but he loved first. Throughout the, the gospel, the gospel of Mark here, Jesus predicts his suffering three times, and I think we'll get back to this in a little while, but three times he predicts that he is going to suffer. Mark is showing that, that this mission of Jesus, it's a mission of suffering. Jesus knows it the whole time. It's not like he gets to the cross and, oh, oh no, the, the God, this powerful God, is shocked by a Roman cross that he couldn't defeat. What he's saying is, the entire trip he was planning to go to the cross, he was planning to suffer and die. That death, and see, Romans, they would have seen the cross as like the ultimate shame. The worst thing that could happen to you as a person would be to be crucified. That would be the lowest of the low. In fact, Romans couldn't even be crucified by law. Because that was just, that was below them. And so when they hear about Jesus being crucified, they would say, ah, your God got crucified? That's terrible. And what Mark is saying, he's, look it, Jesus, he was planning to go to the cross. This was part of God's plan all along. They did not have power over him. So he wrote to show that Jesus was a suffering servant. And finally, he wrote to show that Jesus was a savior worth following. A savior worth following. Do you know that each, after each time that Jesus predicted his death, and if you can look at these up, it's really interesting because there's a pattern in the three times. What happens is he, he predicts his death, the disciples misunderstand it and argue with him. And then he preaches on what it means to be a real disciple. He preaches on what it means to be the cost of the discipleship. If you are going to follow me, I'm going to suffer and die. They're going to argue, but that's not right. Because my mission involves suffering. It involves a cross. And if you're going to be my follower, you're my disciple, yours involves the same thing. And that's what he's doing. He's a savior worth following. He's trying to encourage these Romans and again, he's in Rome. Paul is being killed. Peter's being killed. The persecution that Nero started against the church is just about to begin, if it hasn't already begun. And all the Christians are going to be persecuted and killed. This is happening in the church right now. All of the persecutions, they start in Rome. So he's writing to this church in Rome. He's writing to the Roman mind, and he's trying to say, listen, I want to encourage you you're not following a powerless God. You're following a powerful God who knew his mission was to suffer. And he, he had victory in the suffering, and you will too. And so that God is a God worth following. His purpose was to present the power and the mission of Jesus, the suffering servant, and the divine Savior. His audience, we've already kind of covered this, but he wrote with an emphasis on action. He wrote to a Roman mind. He proved by his miracles that he was God. He proved by his service that he was greater than their gods. And he proved by his sacrifice that he is the Savior. And then we also see, just kind of to, to demonstrate that he's writing to a Roman 
mind that he explained Jewish customs. And so as he goes through the gospel, you find a section like Mark chapter 7, verse 2. It says, And when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. And so that goes on to explain that more. But what he's, what he's doing is saying, listen, when they, when they saw that he had defiled himself, and then Mark's like, oh yeah, you won't get this. Okay, um, it means that he had unwashed hands, and the Pharisees had this rule that you had to wash your hands, otherwise you, you, know, you were defiled. And, and so he explains those things. He's not writing to Jews who already would have understood that. And so he's writing to a Roman mind. Quick outline of the book. We find Jesus the revealer. Mark chapter 1, verses 1. Chapter 8, verse 27, he's revealing himself, he's revealing his power, he's revealing by miracles who he is. Second part is Jesus the Redeemer, Mark chapter 8, verse 28, to chapter 15, verse 27. And here we see Jesus suffering and surrender. From this point on, he says, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die. And it's like his mission changed. For about three years, he walked the earth, he taught, he performed miracles, and, and it was... He was doing this, and he was showing who he was, but it wasn't like there was this destiny in mind. Then all of a sudden, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, when Peter confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, and yes, and the Messiah must suffer and die. And from that point on, it's a trip toward Jerusalem, a trip toward the cross. And then the last chapter, Mark chapter 16, is Jesus the resurrected. So Jesus the revealer, Jesus the redeemer, Jesus the resurrected. The key verse of Mark Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He is different than your gods. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And so the lessons we learn, and I just want to look at some lessons on discipleship, because the truth is, as Mark is writing, he's really encouraging people, you need to follow Christ. He's encouraging these believers in Rome. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is who we follow. This is who he is. This is what he's like. This is how he suffered. This is how you're going to too. And so he shows, first of all, who they were. We won't look at these verses because we're short on time. And the truth is, if, we have, if anybody has questions, I want to get to those at the, at the end. And so we're going to go past the verses. But he shows who they were. We see who disciples are, first of all, in Mark's own life. He is the guy who failed over and over again. He's a guy who everybody else would consider a failure. In fact, if you were, if you were, if you were to pick, if you were to go through like a list of people and get their resumes and say, okay, who am I going to decide to write one of my Gospels? Mark would be the guy that you would, you would toss his resume out at the very start. Okay, so you ran away naked when you found out that he's going to be killed? Okay. And then you went on a mission trip and you left because you were scared? I'm never using a guy like that. Throw that resume out. And God says, let me take this guy and make him useful. Let me give him a second chance. Show him mercy. Show him grace. Show him forgiveness. So this is who the disciples were. They were heart of heart in Mark chapter 6, verse 52. They were spiritually weak in Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 42. And they were dim-witted in Mark chapter 8, verse 14 to 21. They didn't ever seem to get anything Jesus said. Uh, when he talked about his death, they would always argue with him. I mean, they just didn't get it. If we look at the picture of the disciples, especially in the book of Mark, we see disciples that just didn't get it. They weren't bright. They, weren't, they, didn't, they were weak on faith. They weren't unimpressive guys. And these, this is who the disciples are. So if you fall into one of those categories, dim-witted, heart of heart, or spiritually weak, you're a candidate to be a disciple of Christ. All right? <laughs> That's who they were. 
what they should do. Mark shows that Christians must walk the same road as Jesus walked. A road of humility. Jesus was humble. He's willing to serve the weak. He's willing to serve the leopard. He's willing to serve those that were sinful, that everybody knew about it. And Mark shows that clearly. And so he was humble. He, he was living a life of service. He understood that our actions speak louder than words. And so Mark writes his gospel and he says, I just want to show you what he did. I mean, there's some teaching, but this is what he did. This is how he served. I wonder if sometimes people were to look at our lives and they were to write down, you know, everything that we said and they would write down everything that they did, that we did. I wonder if they'd say, yes, he said all this and this was so true. You know, he, good teaching, good doctrine. But man, why is there so little in what he did? Well, in Jesus' life, Mark is saying, okay, we, in Matthew, we learned. This is what Jesus taught. He gives many teaching discourses. In Mark, we just see this is what he did. He lived it. And I wonder if they could, they could say that about us. And so we are called to live this life of humility, the life of service, just acting at our faith, and finally a life of suffering. One person said about the Gospel of Mark that Mark is a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And it seems kind of like right from the beginning, Mark is just looking forward to getting to tell us about the cross, to tell us about the suffering that his Savior endured. And we, Christ suffered, we should expect to suffer too as his disciples. So we learn who they were. We learned what they should do. And then we learn why they should do it. Jesus commanded it. Mark, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, says, When he called the people unto him with his disciples, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you want to come after Christ, the command is take up your cross and follow me. And if you don't take up your cross and follow him, then what he's saying is, you don't want to come after me. The command for every disciple is to take up a cross. And Jesus was willing to work with these dimwit, hard-hearted, lack-of-faith people because he, he could say to them, listen, I know this is where you're at, but if you will take up your cross and follow me, just follow me, I will make something out of you that you could not imagine. You will affect the world for Christ. Why they should do it? Because first of all, their Savior commanded it. Second of all, because I think Jesus advised it. I think he, he was giving them advice. Because the next verse that follows 8.34, he says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. He says, you need to do it, because if you're going to follow me, you must take up a cross. But not only that, realize, this is a good idea, folks. This isn't a foolish thing to do. Take up your cross and follow me, because saving your life means you'll lose it. If you try and grasp onto your life and, and, and fulfill it with all the things that, that you think will be fulfilling to you, if you think that pleasure and th this world's enjoyment is going to fill everything that you want, you're going to lose your life. But if you really want to save your life, lose it. It's good advice. If we live this life for the cause of Christ, then come eternity, we will have saved our lives. I mean, we will have spent our lives for the glory of God. That's the, the best thing we can possibly do is to just to be that good and faithful servant. And so Jesus commands it, and he says, yeah, and it's a good idea too. It's going to work out better in the end for you. So we see his command, we see his advice. Finally, we see Jesus' example. 
Mark 10:45. we read this verse already, but the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He, he, he demonstrated what he was talking about. Okay? Serve, just like I've served you. Serve others. Remember what I did for you. And then live out your life to serve others. So, if you are like me, if you're one of those disciples that you just kind of figure that God could never use you, that you've failed already, that you've missed the boat, then you're just like Mark. And we have this wonderful gospel, according to Mark, that's proof that God uses people like us. 